0: Welcome to the Semper Reformator Podcast, spreading the word and contending for the faith. In Matthew's Gospel chapter eighteen and verse eighteen down to the end of the chapter. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore. And teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Jesus telling his disciples, commanding his disciples, to go out into the world and to make disciples. What is this passage, what is the Great Commission really about? Let's look at it for a few moments and see. The first thing is that Christians are to go in power. Verse 18, Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go. Go ye therefore. It happened after the resurrection. Jesus was crucified and buried and rose again on the third day, and he is alive. And his resurrection body, he is making post-resurrection appearances around Jerusalem, and he's speaking to his disciples. And he came and he spoke to him. To them. And these are the words, the very words from the lips of our resurrected Savior. And the first thing he talks about is his power. Resurrection power. Look at its source. It is given unto him. All power is given unto me. He is the omnipotent Savior. And his power is given to him as of right. We don't have that right. We cannot generate that kind of power within ourselves. Christ's power is derived from the Father, not as a gift. But... As of right, for he is seated at the right hand of the Father, from whence all power is derived. Now, in a few weeks' time, we're going to be at our carol service reading some of the passages concerning the incarnation of Christ. One of those is John's Gospel, chapter 1, and verse 1, John's prologue. And he talks about the pre-incarnate power of Christ. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. He was powerful before his incarnation. He was powerful in his earthly life, in his miracles. He was powerful in his death, for he defeated the devil. He was powerful when he rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. And he is powerful where he sits on the right hand of the majesty on high. We have a powerful savior. Look at the extent of his power. It is all power. It is all power universally. It is all power in heaven and in earth. It is power over all of creation. It is the power to forgive sins. No matter how deeply died those sins may be. It is the power to save sins. It is the power, it is the power to heal bodies. It is the power to intercede for his people. It is power to reign. Over heaven and earth, it is power to set up and to remove kingdoms. We have a powerful Savior who has commissioned us to go out and be his representatives in this world. Because we have that Savior, we need never be ashamed. We need never be discouraged or timid you have a powerful, risen Lord. We are His people. We are to go. The command is given to us, it was given, of course. Historically, to those first apostles, but for us too, we're still to go, we're to carry the message of the gospel away into the whole world, to every tribe and every tongue, and to every nation and to every people. before he rose and ascended to the Father in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, Jesus says, ye shall receive part. So talking about that. after the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. I think Christians are far too timid too reticent to speak out. The world's not like that. There's been development I don't know whether you noticed this week Crown Prosecution Service in England and Wales has recommended to the courts hasn't been carried in the news of course recommended to the courts that certain passages of the Bible should be outlawed in public you can guess what they are the Christian faith is constantly under attack We shouldn't be timid. We have a powerful saviour. We're given an instruction to go, to bear witness to him. Open your mouth and speak out about Jesus. And look at the method of proclamation. It is to teach all nations. Now that's important. A number of years ago I was talking to a pastor, one of a team of pastors leading a very large and In earthly terms, successful church, at least in terms of money and numbers. He had a powerful church, a powerful praise band. There was drums and guitars and wind instruments. Lots of singers and the songs and the music would go on for 45 minutes or so. People standing up and singing and swaying about He told me at that meeting, he says, you know, our church is not like your church. The worship in our church is so exciting. It's so exhilarating that it's easy for people to get saved. That's what you call easy belief, isn't it? But that's not what Jesus is commanding here. Christians are not commanded to be exciting or to have innovative worship. We are to teach and that requires a steady diet of Christian doctrine week after week after week. As Isaiah said in Isaiah 28, precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. That's how we are to teach people. Slow, steady, methodical doctrinal instruction and that's what we do here the word teach in the Greek here is derived from the word mathetes means disciples literally it would say go ye therefore and disciple make disciples the Amplified Bible puts it like this Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, helping the people to learn of me and believe in me and obey my words. We are to go and we are to teach in the name of the mighty Saviour of mankind. And so make disciples, new disciples, who will learn about the Saviour, who will know what he has done for them, who will believe in him and trust him and in response to his love will follow him. Christians article in power. But then Jesus says, go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them. Baptism comes after teaching. We're to teach people first. Look at Christ's formula for Baptism. He tells us here where to baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. This is the word, the exact wording of Christ himself. Now I want to look for a wee moment at something that happened in the book of Acts, which we will have studied before some years ago. But look at Acts chapter nineteen and verse one. And if you've got your Bible still open, turn to that because this is an important passage. I want you to see a historical event that occurred. Acts chapter 19 and verse 1. And it came to pass that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper coast, came to Ephesus. Finding certain disciples, he said unto them, Have ye received the Holy Ghost since ye believed? And they said unto him, We have not so much as heard, whether there be any Holy Ghost. And he said unto them, Unto what then were ye baptized? And they said, Unto John's baptism. Then said Paul, John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him, which should come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Ghost came on them, and they spake with tongues and prophesied. Now there are some people in the fringes of evangelicalism who will tell you that you are to baptize people in the name of Jesus. and They use that verse, that text, as their proof text. There's people here in the town of Ephesus who had been baptized only with John's baptism. These believers had no assurance that they were saved, that the Holy Spirit was dwelling within them. They had no indwelling presence of Christ. They'd never even heard of the Holy Spirit. So that when they heard the gospel and when they believed... Paul re-baptized them. It's the one single incident of rebaptism in the whole of the New Testament. And it's not a precedent for us. Acts is a historical book in context. It is telling us what was done, not what we must do. And so they were baptized previously in the name of John, with John's baptism. But that baptism wouldn't have been using the formula, we baptize you in the beautiful name of John the Baptist, it would have been simple baptism for repentance. But now they're being baptized into Christ, being baptized as Christians in the name of Jesus. Paul would have used the formula that Jesus instructed him to use. To baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. So we have this instruction that we're to baptize, we're to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost, and we're to be obedient. So what is the purpose of baptism? Why did Jesus tell his disciples that having taught them they are to baptize them now, i want you to see the very important link between the teaching of doctrine and the practice of the sacraments because it's important it is the purpose of both the ordinances both baptism and communion are given to us to reinforce The message of the gospel. The teaching that we are given from the pulpit. To be visual aids. To help us to understand the simplicity of the message that Christ died for sinners on the cross. They are to point us to Jesus. To tell us and remind us that he shed his own precious blood to atone for our sins. By his death, taking the punishment that we deserve for our sins The blood that washes away all of our sins. There's a marvelous passage in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 18. It says this. For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things, silver and gold, from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb, without blemish and without spot. In Revelation 5 and verse 9, the saints sang a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for Thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by Thy blood out of every kindred, and tongue, and people, and nation. Baptism doesn't save you. Communion doesn't save you. The sacraments point us to Christ, who saved us at the cross. The symbols that we have on the table and in the font Illustrate for us the message of the gospel. So in question 66 in the Heidelberg Catechism, our catechist asks us simply, what are the sacraments? And our reply is that the sacraments are holy, visible signs and scenes. They are instituted by God so that by their use he might the more fully declare and seal to us the promise of the gospel. And this is the promise that God graciously grants us forgiveness of sins and everlasting life because of the one sacrifice of Christ accomplished at the cross. I was once asked to write a monthly article for a church magazine. And in one particular month I decided that I would, in this article, respond to news that a Christian airline stewardess had been sacked for wearing a cross. I agreed in the article that the woman should not have lost her job but but I took issue with the common idea that a simple little silver cross is a Christian symbol. I argued that plenty of people who are not Christians wear a cross shaped brooch or hang a cross round their neck on a necklace. And I told them that because a person wears a cross, it doesn't mean that that person is a Christian. In fact, I wrote in the article that the only Christian symbols that we have are those that are set out for us in the Scriptures. Baptism. And the Lord's Supper. Those are the only symbols. A woman came in one day to the room where I was getting ready for a funeral many years ago when I was wearing a red hood above a clerical Geneva gown. And she looked at it and she said, is that a symbol for the blood of Christ? And I said, no, it's a red hood. The only symbol that we have for the blood of Christ is baptism the Lord's Supper. Nowhere in the Bible are we told to wear a little silver cross or a gold one. We're told instead to take up our cross and to carry it, a reference to bearing witness for Christ, suffering for Christ as Christ suffered. Well, you can imagine the reaction to the article was horrendous. People snubbed me in the church foyer and walked out past me and accused me of being a stirrer, for apparently I didn't know that there was a big debate about crosses 25 years earlier. And that evening all the church choir turned up wearing crosses. But the matter settled in doctrine. Like it or not, the only Christian symbols are baptism and communion and nothing more. The two signs that point people to the gospel The two symbols that act as visual demonstrations of how Christ has died in our room instead, how his death washes away all of our sins, only baptism and the Lord's Supper were commanded by Christ. So they demonstrate for us the promise of the gospel that God graciously grants us forgiveness of sins. What do we have? We have Christians are to go in par. Baptism is always related, in fact both of the sacraments are always related to the teaching of Christian doctrine. They cannot be separated. They are visual aids of what is spoken and taught. Finally, we have the means and extent of Christ's presence. For he says, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. And I've said that Christians are to go in Christ's power, that we're far too timid. We're to lift our voices, knowing we have a powerful Saviour. And have said that Christians are to be obedient in baptism and following the commands of the Lord. And that won't be easy. But we have this precious promise that when we go into all the world to make disciples, to teach and preach and administer the sacraments that point men and women to Christ, that the Saviour will go with us. That wasn't just for those believers who were standing in his physical presence that day. It is for all of us. For it is even unto the end of the world. And it's not a vague promise. It's a fact. Jesus didn't say, go out into the world and I'll be with you. He made it more positive than that. There was no doubt in their minds. He said, I am with you. I am present. I'm here. Right up to the end of the world. It's now a spiritual presence. But Jesus is every bit with us, with his church, with his believers, as he was in those days when he stood in a physical presence with those first apostles. John chapter 16 and verse 7 he says it is expedient for you, it is good for you and I go away because he sends us his Holy Spirit and his presence with us through the presence of God's Holy Spirit and before we finish and we are finished but just in a final confirmation of what he's saying. Jesus finishes this commission with the word Amen. It's not a perfunctory obligatory end to a prayer or a sermon. It's more than that. It's the divine imprimatur on this charge, this commission. It will be so. To the end of the word.